Uh, but this morning we are in the second half, more or less, of our series. We're going through the book of Galatians, and the lens we're taking to look at the second half of the book is just called Sons and Daughters. And so let's let's move on into chapter 4, actually the end of chapter 4 this morning. Uh, the, the scripture reading is going to be on the screen to your left and to your right. Chapter 4, verse 19 through the end of the chapter. My little children, for whom I am... I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds with the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written... Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. It's God's word this morning. So, uh, if you know me or know much about my story, you may know I have what seems like 14 children. It's actually only four, uh, but it seems like there's, you know, one in every classroom in promised land. And let me grab that mic right there. Um, so, I've been under... Yeah have been made aware we're having some technical difficulties because of all the wi-fi stuff in our world now so anyway this ought to do it there we go very good uh yeah so there's like one child i have in every room in promised land and if you're a teacher here you know that uh and of course they're all amazing as you would all would know but i do have one that plays the role of the troublemaker in the family and unless you are his teacher in promised land you're already thinking i like him already you know kind of like him anyway our three sons take piano lessons and i took piano lessons for a number of years growing up and so i sort of know what piano lessons and songs and practice are supposed to sound like and one day it was our sons our special sons uh turned to practice the piano and uh and he is special. Anyway, you know, he hates to practice. He'll do anything to get out of practice. He'll foam at the mouth and roll over and play dead to get out of practice. Um, and I know this, but I get home from work one day, and I, and I walk in, and I, and I greet him, and I hear him playing, and I go in to greet the rest of the family and say hi to my kids and wife. Uh, and, but after a few minutes, I notice that all I'm hearing coming from the piano room are the first, first few slowly and repeatedly played notes of jingle bells. <laughs> jingle bells all the way, over and over and over. So I come back, and I, and I walk back, and I 
poke my head around the corner to, to see what's happening, and this is the scene in the room. He is uh, holding a book with his left hand, his head down, looking down on his lap, and with his right hand, he's playing slowly the notes over and over of Jingle Bells. Now, of course, you know what he's thinking. He's thinking, you know, if I just make enough noise here, <laughs> mom and dad will think I'm actually practicing. And, you know, I would have been mad at him if I weren't laughing so <laughs> so hard at the situation. It was pretty comic. I'm like, that was a new one. That's pretty good. Uh, but I had to go to him and, you know, of course, and say, hey, buddy, I know you, you think that, you know, you're trying to make us think we're, you're practicing your recital songs, but the Christmas recital... Is it for like another seven months? So that was what tipped us off. And I had to talk with him and say, you know, I like your creativity, but it doesn't do you any good to take the easy way out. The way to really progress is to take a look at what's hard on the page in front of you and get down to the bottom of it. All right, now, switch gears here. The Apostle Peter, who was a fisherman, wrote this about Paul the lawyer, <laughs> over in Second Peter 3. He said, you know, after thinking about it, there's just some stuff that Paul wrote in his letters that's hard to understand. <laughs> He's saying, you know, the stuff Paul wrote, I, I don't really get it sometimes. And this morning we do come to one of those sort of hard to understand, hard to play kind of pieces. But if we'll do some hard work here with the passage... Now, just look at the Bible and sort of play the spiritual equivalent of jingle bells. But really, we go beneath the surface and we dive down to the bottom of Galatians 4. I believe there's enough treasure there at the bottom of it to make the poorest heart rich this morning. So let's, what's at the bottom of it? Let's ask. Basically, there are four things happening in turn that are going on here in the passage. We're going to look at them first. Let's see what Paul isn't doing. Second, what Paul is doing. Third, what Abraham didn't do. And finally, we're going to look at what God has done. What God has done. Let's begin in number one and just ask, well, what's Paul not doing here? He's not doing something. And actually, it's important to answer that question because over the last 40 years or so, this passage, if you can believe it, has actually become a hot topic of controversy and a passage that many skeptics, many celebrities have used to make the Bible mean whatever they want it to mean. You're thinking, man, how in the world could they get that from here? Well, it's because of this one little phrase, one little word and one little phrase that Paul uses here when he says the word allegorically. He says, now this may be interpreted, what? Allegorically. So Paul here, in the passage, he is bringing up an Old Testament story from the life of Abraham, which we'll look at here in a minute. And when he unpacks what it means, he uses the word allegoreo, which basically means a figure of speech, or as your translation may say today, figuratively. In other words, Paul here, he's pulling out an Old Testament passage and he's saying, I'm taking it, I'm treating it like an allegory, which now has set off a whole bunch of people who say, aha, I knew it. Paul doesn't really believe those people in the Bible were real. He believed the whole thing was made up, that's all fictional stories, and we should too. He's showing us, therefore, that we can read the Bible however we want to. Yeah, he's saying we can think it means whatever we want. And of course, many people have picked up on this over the years. Maybe you have, maybe your neighbor has. Certainly, Oprah Winfrey has. She says all the time, I like to take the Bible figuratively, not literally. And maybe you think, because she thinks, that the problem with Christians, maybe the problem with the church, is that they take the Bible Literally. How many guys have heard that before? Yeah, you've heard that. 
when these people say, really, they should be taking it figuratively, which is code for, I can really believe whatever I want to believe, right? And look, Paul did too. But let's say, let's have a couple of actually hypothetical conversations here, you and I. You ready? Here we go. Let's say you and I are having hypothetical conversation number one, and you say, Morgan, I'm having a hard time in life. I'm really struggling. Bad things are happening to me. I'm not seeing a way out. It's dark. Uh, It's hopeless. There's no light. And let's say, oh, yes, I see what you're saying here. You're saying, I can rob your house and take your money. You say, well, wait, I didn't say that. I said, well, I like to take what you said figuratively. (laughs) Your problem, Mr. Hopeless Situation Guy, is that you're taking it literally, right? So I take your words figuratively. What that means is good for me. I'll have your social security number now. Please and thank you. Now, in what I did in our hypothetical first conversation, is what I did intellectually honest? No. Does it have integrity? No. Or is just maybe when I claim that I take whatever you say figuratively, is that really just a smokescreen for being able to do whatever I want? Yeah, yeah. So let's have now our second hypothetical conversation because I can tell you're liking these a lot. Okay, let's say once more you say to me, Morgan, I'm having a hard time. You know, I'm in a hopeless situation. I don't see a way out. Now let's say to you, you this time, oh, friend. I have hope for you. Remember the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, remember what it means that God can take any hopeless situation and bring it back to life. He can take any dead thing and resurrect it. Right. Now, what have I just done? I've actually taken the resurrection figuratively there. I'm using an implication of it and applying it to your situation, but... Just because I'm using it figuratively, allegorically, doesn't mean I don't believe it happened literally. Because I do. Because it really did happen at one moment in human history. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was really crucified, was really buried, was really resurrected. And if you had been there with your fancy iPhone 6 super camera now, you could have caught it. Maybe posted it on Facebook. How many of you wish that could have happened? Yeah, it would have been nice. See, it happened literally... But I was using it in your situation, what? Figuratively. Why? Well, because I was counseling you, right? Now, Paul believed the Old Testament narratives literally happened, and you should too. But there are parts of the Bible that you should take figuratively, like the Psalms, which are what? Poetry, right? Parts of the prophets, which are allegory, parts of Revelation. See, the key is knowing in the Bible which is which, and not just saying, as many conservatives do, I take the whole Bible, literally. And the key is not just saying, as many liberals do, oh, I take the whole Bible figuratively. What is intellectually honest is saying, which is which? See, which is which? What kind of literature is this? And what did the author mean? Now, what if you, final hypothetical situation, what if you wrote a letter, and in the letter to one of your friends, you wrote mm, a story about one of your friends or one of your children, And in addition to the story, you wrote a poem in there, being the great poet that you are, right? Now, if I were to come across your letter, how should I read your letter? Should I read it figuratively or literally? And the answer is what? Yes. The answer is yes. Thank you. You know me well enough. Yes. You take the literal parts literally and the figurative parts figuratively, and so you should with the Bible. See, the, the irony is actually, if you dismiss the Bible as only and always figurative, 
You are as fundamentalist in your approach as the fundamentalists you decry as reading it all literally, see. So let's not do to the Bible what we would never want someone doing to us. For someone to understand what you have written, what would you like them to do? How about learn about you, right? How about study it? Maybe where you wrote it, who the recipient was. If I said to you, it doesn't matter what your letter says. The only thing that matters is what it means to me. (laughs) Can you see how selfish that is of me? I'm reading the whole thing as if it were all about me and what I want. You would say, are you kidding? And you arrogant, you know, 21st century chronological snob. You can't do that. My letter can never mean to you what it didn't mean in the first place, right? So let's not do to the Bible something we would never want someone to do to something we wrote. Got it? All right. So Paul isn't saying here, you can read the Bible however you want. That's not what he's doing. But let's ask now, though, number two, what is he doing? Because he actually, of course, is doing something here. And it's simply this. It's fairly easy to see. He is counseling... The Galatians, he's counseling them like a parent, right? Because look what he said. He's saying, I'm like a mother. Uh, I'm in labor over you. I'm laboring. I'm in anguish with childbirth pains till you break through. And so he's going to counsel them to break through with the Bible story here. And in a few minutes, again, I'll get to what his counseling is and how it still speaks to you today. But that's what he's doing. He's simply counseling here. But now we've got to ask, well, again, to whom... Is he counseling? Now, you all know the answer to that. What is it? He's counseling who? The Galatians. Thank you for that, both of you. Yes, you've been here for 18 weeks in Galatians, and you now get it. All right. Galatians. Paul is counseling the Galatians because a group of false teachers had moved into the churches there and were teaching that, yes, Jesus is good, but to really be pleasing to God, Galatian Christians, you must mix in cultural Judaism. The false teachers were saying, you you must be circumcised, you must follow the dietary laws, you know, observe all the Jewish festivals and Passover to really be pleasing to God and to really be the true church. Yes, Jesus is good, but you still must follow all the law. And though the Galatian Christians, as we've seen, have had their lives changed by believing the gospel, which is that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing, The force and the pressure of the Judaizers was causing their faith to buckle. And they were going back and they were going now and celebrating these, you know, festivals and laws and thinking they really needed to do that to be the true church. And Paul is saying, stop it. You know, stop it. He's putting his foot down and he's about to launch his final counterattack. And this is how he sets up now his counterattack, his brilliant strategy here to counteract the Judaizers, and he asks a question. He says this, ask this, tell me, you, again, this is plural here, you all, or as we would say what? Y'all. Yeah, beautiful word in southern English, right? I mean, we've got a word the Bible didn't even have. Y'all. Y'all. Y'all are desiring to be under the law. Don't y'all listen to the law. He's, he's saying, you, you who? You Galatians, aren't you listening to what the law says to people like you and y'all. Because who were the Galatians, right? Before they became Christians, who were they? They were Roman pagans. They didn't know the word of God. They didn't know a thing about Moses or the Ten Commandments. They were classically 
pagan people. And not only do we forget that, we forget just how dark it was culturally in that day. Three, three ways to, to sort of explain that. Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, notes that one of the reasons Christianity grew in the first few centuries was because women flocked into the church. Yeah, and the reason they flocked into it was because of what the Bible said about sex and sexuality, which is this, that you must not have sex with someone outside the covenant of a man and woman in marriage. Now, to you and our culture, I mean, that seems uptight and not cool, man. You know, and not free and all that good stuff. But in that day, that was revolutionary. See, because in their world, there was an absolute double standard about sex. Men, especially married men, could have sex with anyone, anytime, anywhere, and the women could not. But Christianity came along and said, no, God's word is binding, not just on women, but on men. And the women loved it. Why? Why? You know, sexual justice. You know, finally, you know. See, there's no double standard anymore. The Bible's view on sex is absolutely, can you see, egalitarian. It's empowering of women, and it sowed the seeds for the end of polygamy. But it wasn't just the Bible's view on sex that caused the church to grow. Secondly, it was its view on mercy. In multiple cases of widespread disease in the Roman Empire that wiped out tens of thousands, history records that pagans notoriously would pick up their dying, diseased relatives and cast them out into the streets. But the Christians would come along not fearing contamination and pick up the mothers and brothers and sons and children that had been cast out into the street, nurse them, even sometimes dying themselves. And thirdly, the Bible's view on gender, actually on life, caused the church to grow. In those days, the men in the Roman Empire outnumbered the women, men outnumbered women, 140 to 100. Big disparity. But inside the church, it was even absolutely 100 to 100. Why? Why the disparity outside the church? Well, because it was a common and accepted pagan practice to kill unwanted baby girls. In one Greek census in a town of about 600 families around the time of Christ, almost every family in the town had seven to nine children. Way more than I got, right? Seven to nine children. But only six out of 600 families had more than one daughter. There's one daughter, seven, eight, nine sons. Why? Well, because they would have one daughter and kill the rest. There's actually a letter recorded uh, from antiquity from from an Alexandrian businessman who wrote a letter home to his pregnant wife and said, I'm looking forward to being home with you in a few weeks. I miss you. I'll see you then. And, oh, by the way, if our baby is born while I'm gone, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, kill it. Love you. Be home soon. Yeah. But until Christianity came along and said that every life matters, until Christianity came along and said that sex is a gift from God for women and for men, until it came along and said that caring for the poor is like caring for God himself, these issues plague the Roman Empire and culture. That's how dark the culture was. And that's who the Galatians were. But they had come out of all of that. They were no longer slaves of that whole system. They were free, delivered, transformed. Can you see they were a whole new kind of counterculture. But how? But how? Because it was God's love to them in the gospel of Jesus. And how did they get that? How did they get God's love? Paul is saying this in the scripture. It wasn't because you obeyed the law. 
No. Galatians, you weren't even obeying it in the first place. God didn't set his love on you because you obeyed it. You were a baby killing, poor and diseased relative abandoning, sexually depraved people. But God chose you and loved you and set his his love on you and saved you. Why? Not because you were so good. Actually, you weren't good to begin with. Which is why once more he says, tell me, you want to be under the law? Don't you remember what the law says to people like you? It's that you could never keep it. You could never keep it. Don't you get it? He's saying, you became something, he said, when you believe the gospel. And here is where the whole passage turns. You became not just children of God, but if you've been reading along, you'll see he's saying, you became children of who? He says one more or one name. Abraham. Yeah, Abraham. Pause. Selah. (laughs) Consider. What does this mean? Why is this a big deal? Well, Abraham's name was a big deal because the Judaizers have been telling the Galatians the true children of Abraham are the ones who were circumcised, who are keeping the law. Abraham, the forefather of our faith, were his children. You're his children if you obey the law. The Judaizers were saying you're not keeping the law enough. Therefore, you're not really sons of Abraham. And now, oh, I love this. Paul has had enough. I mean, he is about to lay down the hammer stroke on them. He's saying, all right, all right, all right, y'all. Okay, all right. Y'all want to talk about the sons of Abraham? Let's talk about the sons of Abraham. Because Abraham didn't have just one son, did he? No, oh, he had two sons, the Bible talks about. Let's talk about them. And that's what he does next. He lifts up this story to show them and us who becomes a child of God and how. So let's look at that. Number three, let's look at what Abraham didn't do. He didn't do something here. And Paul says, okay, Galatians, Judaizers, Mosaic Church, Austin, game on, game on. You want to talk about Abraham? Let's go. Verse 22, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. See, Abraham, as you may know, was the one all the way back in Genesis that God came to and said, Abraham, through you and through your family, I'm going to save the world. Oh, it sounded so nice. Really? What a great thing to say. Until you realize he's too old to have kids and his wife's too old to have children. It was impossible for them, biologically speaking, to have children. Well, what does that mean? Why would God promise them that? Oh, because God was wanting to show that right away, from the beginning, His promise of salvation could only come by grace. Only come by a supernatural touch and intervention. The only way God could save the world was through grace. But as the years went by, and no son arrived, Abraham's faith, Sarah's faith, and God's promise began to shrink until one day, Sarah's heart went dark. It went dark. And she hatched a dark plan. And this is what it was. Because it was customary in those days for a family's servant to sleep with the master of the family in order to give his family an heir if he didn't have one. Sarah said, all right, Abraham, I'm tired. I can't take it anymore. Take Hagar, our beautiful, young, fertile Egyptian servant girl. Go to her, sleep with her, and have our son through her. And that's what happened. That's what Abraham did. And now Paul is saying, Galatians, can you see that story shows us one way of trying to 
get the promise of God in our life. That's one way of trying to become a child of God. It's through human effort, Galatians. Now let's ask, though, why would Abraham and Sarah give in to that? Why did they give in? Didn't they realize, you know, from the beginning that this was something impossible that only God could do? And of course, they realized it. When someone comes to you and says, when you're in your 70s, 80s, and 90s, you're going to have a baby, you realize it's impossible unless you get some supernatural help. They knew it. But why did they give in? And the answer is, They gave into this horrible cultural practice. They didn't trust God. They wreaked havoc on their family and on Hagar's life. For the same reason, you give in to whatever you give in to. It's this, hear this. They were trying to cover their shame. Trying to cover their shame. They were ashamed of who they were. Their culture pressured them. Told them in their day, you're nothing if you don't have an heir. They lived in a shame culture. You say, well, whoo, thank goodness. That was back then. Good thing we're beyond that today. Slow down. Uh, actually, our culture today has become far more of a shame culture than it was even 50 to 100 years ago when we were much more, much, much more of a guilt culture. Uh, in a guilt culture, by contrast, you feel badly about your actions and when you don't live up to what you know is right. But today, we feel badly, not when we don't live up to what we know is right, we feel badly when what we don't live up to what our culture says is the way we ought to look or think or feel. You know, you know it. Listen, you feel ashamed when you go to the grocery store. Maybe I just do. Uh, you see the magazines there, right? Either the magazines tell you, you're too big, or you're too small, you know, or you're too hairy, or you're not hairy enough, right? Or you don't have abs, like that guy's got abs, right? You don't have that kind of home or furniture or car. You, you go to that person's house, and what do you feel? Not guilt. Maybe shame, right? I don't drive what they drive. I don't make what they make. And shame is what drives people into debt today. Make bad financial decisions. Why? To cover what they feel they do. Excuse me, don't have. People make, you know, bad plastic surgery choices to cover what they think they don't have. Come on, y'all. Y'all have seen that thing on Yahoo, right? The 10 worst, you know, celebrity plastic surgery. Art, you know. Wait, maybe I'm the only one who's heard about that. I've heard about that. Think that was who? You know, people starve themselves to try to cover their weight. Maybe they don't feel that they look like what they look like, even though they are amazing. They're amazing. See, we don't live in a guilt culture anymore. It's shame, just like what Abraham faced. Andy Crouch, who's the editor of Christianity Today, in a recent article called "The Good News About Shame," talks about how we live in a culture far more like Abraham's than we think. But he calls it today a fame-shame culture, which he defines as a one where people yearn to feel included in the group, a state constantly endangered, fragile, and desperately in need of protection. All right, before we go on, he's saying this. There's basically a cool group in our culture, and we want to be a part of the cool people's group and take our moral cues from that. And the cool group are the famous people, essentially. It's a fame-shame culture. And then he gives one example. It's fascinating. He says this dynamic, basically have, bring pressure to change because of what fame culture says, plays out powerfully in North American Christian views of human sexuality. 
Older Christians likely remember the way violating the prevailing moral code by, say, pregnancy outside marriage or homosexuality once brought public shame. But even 50 years ago, sexual ethics still tended to be framed in terms of right or wrong, not in terms of mere social approval or disapproval. But North Americans, including Christians, increasingly frame their sexual ethics in light of a paramount concern for social inclusion or exclusion. In a fame-shame culture, the only true crime is to publicly exclude and shame others. Talk of right and wrong is troubling when it is accompanied by seeming indifference to the experience of shame that accompanies judgments of quote-unquote immorality. So attempts to reiterate traditional Christian sexual ethics fall not on deaf ears, get this, but on ears highly attuned to dynamics of shame and rejection. Interesting, isn't it? What's he saying? He's saying the reason you feel pressure to compromise what you believe about right and wrong is not because what is right and wrong has changed fundamentally. He's saying we are being shamed into changing what we believe. See, deep down, you may know what God says is right or wrong, but you're shamed by the surrounding culture, pressured into changing what you believe. This happens daily, right? I mean, look on television. There's talk show hosts uh, led by celebrities. You know, both sides. You hold up an individual or a group, and what do they do? They shame them. Right? They shame them, talk badly about them, disparage them, humiliate them, curse them. See, shame is a powerful cultural tool. And you know this is what Abraham faced. I mean, think about it. When God came to Abraham, uh, what did he say? Did he say, Abraham, I'm going to deal with your guilt now. You've been feeling really guilty about your sin. No, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make your what? Your name great. Why his name? Because Abraham was ashamed of his name because he didn't have an heir. And therefore, by God coming to him and saying this, he's saying, I'm not just going to cover your guilt, Abraham. I'm going to cover your shame the way you think and feel about yourself, see. But, oh, Abraham gave in, didn't he? Because he felt like he was nothing without that. And that's why he, was, he gave in. He tried to prove he was somebody apart from salvation by grace. And now Paul says to the Galatians, hey, hey Galatians, you're doing the same thing now. Only with religion. Only with religion. You're doing the same thing Abraham did with Hagar. You're listening to what your culture tells you. That you need something else besides the salvation God gives. And church, if we, when we, listen to what our culture says we need, we will fail miserably like Abraham. If you think, listen, if you think today that having that thing, car, home, vacation, whatever, is what's going to make you feel like somebody, think again. If you think that having this, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the spouse, the husband, is going to make you somebody, you'll fail miserably at it. Why? Because the problem is actually worse than you think. <laughs> Congratulations. It's worse than what you think. According to the Bible, it's not just that we are ashamed of our bad behavior. It's that our shame actually drives our bad behavior. Think of Adam and Eve. What was the first thing they did? What were they driven to do when they sinned? What did they do? They covered themselves, right? Their instinct, because of their shame now, was to cover themselves with fig leaves. Abraham tried it with Ishmael. And here the Galatians are doing the same thing with the law. Giving in, not relating to God on the basis of grace, of what Jesus had done for them. And that's why Paul tells the story of shame. It's brilliant. He's demanding you answer today. Who is the real child of God? 
Who's the real child of Abraham? The one born out of shame? How do we relate to God? Through our own effort or through the way of number four, of what God has done. What God has done. And what did God do? Oh, you know, through a supernatural intervention, he empowered 90-year-old Sarah to conceive, and he brought Isaac, the son of promise, into the world. And now, oh, what does that prompt Paul to do next? He sees the story, he tells it again, and then Paul busts out singing. He starts singing. He quotes Isaiah 54.1. Another passage talking about another barren woman. He says in Isaiah 54, Paul sings this to us. He says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not hear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who aren't in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What's he pointing us to here? Who's he pointing us to? Oh, to the what? He's looking at the scripture through the lens of the gospel. And he's saying there's an ultimate desolate one. The scripture points us to the ultimate forsaken and shamed one, Jesus Christ. See, on the cross, Jesus was humiliated. He was shamed. He was stripped naked, which was the Roman way of shaming the dying. He became on the cross the ultimate barren woman. Took all of our sin, all of our porn watching, affair having, all of our abuse and the pain and the effects of it and took them away. Not just the deeds of them, not just the shame of them, not just the pain of them, not just to be covered. Oh, it gets even better. Not just so that even we could be free, not just so that we could be a part of his family, which is all true, but so that we could have, in the end, our own kind of spiritual children. That we could sing when we see the effects of what God has done through our lives, in the lives of others. See, see what's Paul doing here? He's saying to us in the Galatians, look, in the gospel, when you trust Jesus, there's this supernatural thing he does. He's saying, if you will trust him, Galatians, Mosaic Church, with your pain, with your shame, in the long run, God will do more for you than you could possibly ever imagine. Years ago, uh, when I went, when I began my ministry career, I went into campus ministry, uh, I was actually, honestly, kind of ashamed of it. That's where I began. No one, you know, really cheers you on at the graduation party when you tell your relatives you're going into full-time campus ministry. You know, most, most families don't celebrate that. You tell them doctor, yay. You know, lawyer, yay. Tech career, yay. Campus ministry, stunned silence. You know, what are you doing with your degree? You know, are you going to raise support? What's that like? You're going to ask our friends to give you money to be like the college youth group pastor? What are you doing? I was pretty ashamed of it, scared of it, honestly, but I did it regardless. I followed Jesus onto the college campus, and somehow, despite all my many flaws and my ignorance, hundreds of students came to Jesus, and many of them over those years have stayed in this church, and some of you are those folks, people like you know, Scott Edwards and Philip Edwards and Aaron Sosa and people like Gerald Bowie and Barnabas Willis and Troy and Serena Robertson and Melissa and Wendell Williams and Clyde Ains and David and Summer Allman, and I could go on and should go on, but I can't go on. And uh, later, later, many years later, when this church was at a low point, a low point. There was this membership drive going on, you know, the kind where people get in their cars and drive off the parking lot and never come back. That's a kind of membership drive we were having. There was a lot of shame about who we were as a church because of what previous leaders and their actions had done in the past, but those people stayed. They stayed. They stayed. They stayed 
they rebuilt. They looked at the gospel. They trusted that more could be the children of the desolate woman than those who were singing at the time. And look at us now. Man, God's taken us from somehow the bottom to the top. And he's made this desolate place at one point full of you and children and people because they believed and they stayed and you stayed and we built. We believed in God's ability to do great things here. We are who we are and who are we? Oh, Paul tells us in verse 28, now you brothers, oh, you're children of promise like Isaac. That's who we are as a church. And you ought to say amen to that. You should rejoice in that today. Let me ask you, do you, do you feel barren hmm, someplace? Ashamed. Empty. Here's Paul's advice to you. (laughs) Break out in song. (laughs) Start singing, as Taz said earlier. Lift your voice for what Paul is going to do through your life. Excuse me, what God is going to do through your life, Paul is saying, will be greater than what you could ever imagine. And wasn't it true? Last thought. Wasn't it true with Paul? I mean, look at Paul. He's not just giving advice here. He's taking it. Who is he? Oh, a desolate man, right? Abandoned, no place to lay his head, no wife, no children, no heirs. And yet, what does he say? I'm laboring over all of you. You all Galatians, you're all my children. Ephesians, you're my children. Thessalonians, you're my children. I gave birth to all of you children all over the world. And we're part of that today. Why? Because he looked at the gospel and he believed that greater could be the children of a desolate woman than of the one who had had it all. When it looked like they had it all. Why? Because of the grace God gives to cover who we are. The same can be true of you today. Let's go to him now, church, in faith and believe.